millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Miguel Delaney from The Independent, and Dominic Fifield from The Athletic. Look across Europe and you see the spectre of sustained dominance. The likes of Bayern, PSG and Juventus have created a vacuum of unchallenged excellence. What are the implications for the Premier League? Could we be heading the same way? Is there a danger of English football becoming just another closed shop? Now, Don, we're in the last few days of the build-up to a new season. Will the usual suspects prevail? They probably will. I think that's partly down to the unique circumstances of, of 2020 and, and the pandemic and the, and the pressure, the financial pressure it's put on some of those clubs that, that might have aspired to to breach the top four. We have to bear in mind, of course, that we've got Liverpool and Manchester City who are streets ahead of the rest still, you know, clubs that have been gathering 90-plus points regularly over recent seasons and everybody obviously is playing catch-up to them. But when you see what Chelsea have been able to do in this transfer window, building on a top-four finish from last season and exploiting the fact that they... They had two blank transfer windows and a massive influx of cash in terms of the, the Eden Hazard and Alvaro Morata deals and, and the fact that they're bankrolled by a billionaire Russian oligarch, that they, they are able to, to cope with the financial pressures at the moment better than most clubs. And Manchester United, you could argue the same. They made progress from January onwards, really, having spent on a on a player Fernandez in, in, in January heavily on that player. And I suspect that they will they will build still. We've seen Donny van der Beek join already this this window. They might add one more still. And I still I just think that they, they're able to cope and weather this particular storm better than most. And when you consider that the the club's likeliest to break into that top four your Arsenal's, your Spurs, your, your Wolves, um, Leicester City, they, they've all had their own particular difficulties, largely COVID-related. And, and the fact that they, they, they can't, they don't have the same financial muscle as, as the top four. And I think that, that means that there is a risk that this season is a closed shop for, for those, that quartet at the top. Because I just can't see anybody else really having the, the resources to to spring a surprise and, and oust one of them. Yeah, well, I suppose surprise, surprise means it's going to be down to financial muscle, isn't it? And actually the cost of trying to get into the Premier League's top four is increasing exponentially. 
Yeah, that's it. Uh, and, and as Dama said there, I think the situation only accentuates that because of the stress on teams, even the fixtures, obviously kind of bigger, better squads will have a much bigger effect. And if you look, if you look at last season, even that was like for so long, it seemed like it was going to be a season of surprises with Leicester, Sheffield United and Wolves up so high. And then what happens by the end? The four wealthiest clubs in the country all finished top four. One of them get in there because, as Dom said, they go and spend 70 million on an attacker in January in the way pretty much none of those other three clubs can. Uh, and I think it's probably going to be the same, but more so this season. Now, Ar- Arsenal obviously aren't outside the elite. They're very much one of the big six. But it had felt like a little bit maybe in the last few years that it, it, it was as if this, it, well, in, in terms of the quality of the clubs, the top six have been a bit tiered and that was Liverpool City in terms of performance, then Chelsea United just behind them and then Spurs and Arsenal behind those two as the poor relations. But I, I do think within that, I think Arsenal could finish top four this season. OK, what about, let's look at Liverpool as as champions, Dom. Are they almost a better reflection of the the wider realities of the game? But they've been financially prudent in this transfer window. Is that by design or necessity? Do you think? I suspect necessity. Things like amortisation, etc., are a bit beyond me. They go over my head a bit. But <laughs> I would recommend that there's a a thread on Twitter by Swiss Ramble that went out uh, on Monday morning, which tries to assess Liverpool's finances and and really make a judgment as to why they haven't gone out and and spent big in this in this particular window to almost build upon their their championship success last season and it, it does appear to boil down to the, the the reality that their wage bill has gone up hugely their bonuses with success have gone up hugely and they're just not in a position having relied largely upon player sales in in recent seasons to to have a bit of leeway in the market. They're, they're looking at it and thinking, well, we don't really have the resources to go out there and spend. I mean, Klopp might well argue that it might upset the apple cart to, to bring in too many new faces at the moment. And there's no need. This 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 squad is still developing and, and, and has frightening potential still. But if there is business to be done in, in what remains of the window, it may well be a one-in-one-out type scenario. And we've, we've seen the Wijnaldum suggestions to Barcelona and, and the Thiago from Bayern Munich going the other way almost and, and coming into to Liverpool. And that, that might represent progression, possibly. It may well do, but it, it would have to be balanced and they can't just go out there and splash all their cash on uh, Jadon Sancho or someone like that. Yeah, well, Sancho didn't do himself any favours playing for England at the weekend, did he? What do you think, Megs, the implications would be of not getting the midfield upgrade that Thiago represents? He seems to be playing games at, at Bayern. He's, he's basically saying he'd be happy to stay. And then the club are basically saying, well, we, we expect him to, to leave. Is it just one of these negotiations in public? Yeah, it feels like that, especially given, I think... Even though Thiago only said this weekend, I haven't definitely said I'm leaving Bayern. The kind of will is very much for him to get a new experience somewhere, preferably Liverpool. I think he would do something maybe necessarily different for their team. And obviously, I mean, there's an argument he might be the one of the best central midfielders in the world right now. And just the way he plays gives him something different. Also, in that, I mean, that team has very few flaws. 
But one potential one, if you can even call it a flaw, is that in some games, maybe where they're struggling to break teams down, they don't have that killer pass in midfield, almost by design, because of the way the midfield is structured to kind of support the other, the other elements, particularly kind of the, the wing backs and the strikers. But he would give them something very different in that regard. And from that perspective, you would think maybe just because this has now been pretty much the same team for three years now, it just gives them that little bit of variety, just if, if there's ever a danger of someone trying to work them out. I think that'll be the, the main virtue. At the, at the same time, I mean, I, I was kind of thinking about this in a wider context as well, about teams that haven't really, or kind of, sorry, champion teams that haven't really upgraded over time, whatever. And I think the longest worked out was maybe United with Ferguson between... 94 and 97 when he kind of he kind of had, had that well I mean obviously there were so many of those young players coming through which which, which is a input in itself but the only kind of first team player he bought in really in that period was who actually was a regular starter was Ronnie Johnson who's a defender but I suppose the, the, the general maxim these days is to after two or three years offer some a bit more variety and that's what Thiago would represent mm, well it's, it's one of these when you look at across elite sport, you just can't stand still, can you? Yeah. Um, with Chelsea, Dom, it's a club you know well. It seems to be big business as usual. Given the nature of the club and the level of the investment that's been made, what will be the minimum achievement for Frank Lampard to stay in a job? They have to improve defensively if if, if Chelsea concedes it 54 league goals again next season, which I think they did last year, then... I, the doubts that, that exist about Frank Lampard as a defensive coach will be exacerbated and, and I, I, could, I wouldn't see him surviving. He, he's obviously brought in an awful lot of attacking flair, so they will score more goals and some of the profligacy that we did see at times last season should, shouldn't be as much of a problem going forward. But, I mean, look, I'd say top three, certainly Champions League qualification again, and ideally... You'd like to see Chelsea would like to see silverware. That's that's how they've they've always judged their head coaches. And when you go out and you spend two hundred and twenty seven million pounds on on new players, which is the biggest splurge that Chelsea have had ever. And I think I mean we're we're back to sort of Abramovich levels from from early days in his in his takeover. They will want to see results. Abramovich will want to see results and it doesn't matter so there's an icon in charge of the club uh, you know someone that, that everybody around Stanford Bridge absolutely loves he he will be judged as a manager now not as the the legendary player that he was at, at, at Chelsea so he needs to demonstrate that he's developing as a manager as a coach uh, that he's that he's possibly there's a bit more flexibility to his approach and that they yeah they can sort themselves out defensively and that they progress as a team how do you think Migs, the balance of the team will look like with with all those shiny to- new shiny toys they've got up top, and and secondly, would keeping Kepper be a mistake? There've been some conciliatory noises around him in the last few days. It seems to me that you can't you know, having you've made a decision. You can't go back on that decision, despite whatever financial losses loaning him out would would incur. Yeah, and I, and I think it's all the more important given. I think both the the specificity of the goalkeeper as a position, and also maybe the mentality of keepers in that sense, and and, and we have seen that from from talking to a few people around Kep over the over the last year, they they feel obviously that this was a particularly low point in his career in terms of confidence that you know a, a previous relationship had affected him, and I, I just think from the recent history of the Premier League, even as if you even if you want to go back further, 
I, I, it's, it's one of those positions that just demands absolute certainty. And any sort of doubt like that can create kind of, you know, a, a ripple of problems, particularly in relation to even how the defence works and all the rest of it. And, and you only have to look at the example of Liverpool with Alisson. Klopp was absolutely decisive there. And it does feel like to complete this team, Lampard might have to be similar. And that it might just, not even necessarily about Kepa. I mean, Ke- Ke- given what some people say about him, Kepa could go on to be one of, the, you know, one of the top keepers in the world. It just doesn't feel like Chelsea's the right fit for him. Or, uh, it, it's even felt like that he himself needs a change there. And if, if Lampard wants to really finish this team, I think it's one position he has to be decisive about there in centre-half. Mm. What what about that whole idea of the balance of the team, Dom? You know, because you know, they have committed to you know some fantastic attacking talent. They're shoring up the defence slowly, but um, you know what the balance? What's the balance of the team going to be like? You think? Well, there's options up front, so I mean he can he can chop and change as much as he likes. There, he's got he's got so many options in midfield and and up top. I mean, even even like last season's favourites, Mason Mount will be now competing with a with Kai Havertz to to get into the midfield potentially. I mean, there's it's mouth watering what he what he can do going forward. But you're right, balance is the key. And they will be. They will lean heavily on Thiago Silva. I mean, that which, in some ways, might be quite frightening when you think you're leaning on a 35 year old. He's, yeah, he's he's never played in England before in, in the Premier League, and and we he will he will bring something definitely to the setup. Leadership, organisational skills. Obviously, his communication will have to will have to work on because he's not a fluent English speaker yet. But there are enough people probably across that back line who can speak French to, to get by in in the meantime. But they have they have potentially replaced two of their back four with Ben Chilwell coming in at left back as well and Thiago in the middle. So you know we we have to judge Lampard on on how they do in the next two or three months, and that that is that is effectively now becoming his defence as well. So he, there has to be improvement there. I completely agree with with Migs on on Kepa. I, I, there doesn't seem to be the faith there in him, and it does doesn't feel the right fit at the moment at Chelsea. But he does have a very 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 long contract at that club, and actually when you the way that modern finances work, if you loaned him out for a couple of years back to Spain to a, to a club and, and hope that his 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 game improved, his confidence returned, and he he went back to showing the the potential and and the ability that, that first attracted Chelsea to him, they might not actually make that much of a financial miss on him. I mean, it, he, they they probably cover their costs for those two years loans, and then they, they they're welcoming back a player into the fold who may well yet have a future at, at Chelsea. So there's a logic to that, but then. How much money left is there left at the moment for them to go out and buy a a, a goalkeeper that's going to tie them over? I mean, Edouard Mondi has has been mentioned over at, at Rennes, and, and he's someone that Petr Cech likes and 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 Lollichon likes at uh, at Chelsea. And but I, there are doubts over there whether he's going to be an elite goalkeeper. I mean, is he going to be a goalkeeper that that gets you to the latter stages of the Champions League. I mean, the jury will be out on that, but he might be worth doing just as a stopgap while Kepa regains his confidence elsewhere. Mm. Let's look at Manchester City, Migs, if we if we may. Have they been played by Team Messi? You know, you, you, there was. I thought the situation was brilliantly described on social media as the football equivalent of a marriage staying together because of the kids. Were they played by Team Messi? If not, is there any chance of this being revisited in the winter window? Uh, I don't think they were played because I think even the nature of Messi's extraordinary interview on Friday, especially for a player who 
That was extraordinary. He didn't hold back at all, did he? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and especially for a player who spent most of his career saying nothing in public anyway. Uh, so I think that, that alone indicates how real this was. He does want out. He has wanted out. He has wanted to go to Manchester City. But it was obviously just... I, I don't think, I actually don't think it was much case of um, City being played. It was more a case of Messi and his, his people overplaying their hand and getting it wrong, which is why I think this well could be revisited given that this situation isn't going to go away. In fact, we've probably set up the scenario now where Messi could leave for free next summer, in which case there's no, there's no real reason to suggest that uh, it would be anyone other than City, unless, of course, something changes there. And, I, and that's what's really interesting in terms of City this season, and that for the first time, really, we're actually, for the first time, really, since he took the Barcelona job, we're into a bit of an unknown with Guardiola in that he's never been on a job this long. So he's never had to kind of restructure a team for a second time, which is sort of what started to happen given the age of some of the players. Um, we, we don't really know how he's going to do that or how he'll respond to the kind of to the problem that, of course, like people like Mourinho have had where, you know, players just after a while go off a manager's intensity. So I think that's almost the biggest question for Chelsea this season. And it's, it's because of that... I mean, disappointing is maybe the wrong word, but it would have felt just a little bit hollow had City been encountered with all these potential challenges. And what do they do? Well, we'll just throw more money than ever at the best player ever to, to solve that. So whereas now, now that they don't have Messi, it feels like there's more real problems for Guardiola and the club to solve. And that's what's going to be very interesting about their season. Yeah, well, it's it's been obvious for quite some time they need to sort out that defence. Tuli Bali is one of those eternal names, isn't he, in a, in a transfer speculation. But it does seem now to have some legs. What does Guardiola need to do, do you think, Dom, to, to solidify that, that team? We need Laporte fit for a, for a season. Koulibaly would be a, 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 good, a good addition. Centre-half, a, a sort of the nearest, I guess, you could get to a, a company-type figure, an inspiration there. But, but I don't think negotiations with Napoli are going to be particularly easy after the Jorginho fiasco a few years back. So it might have to be done even through third and fourth parties to get that, that deal sorted. But yeah, it's it's probably gonna it's it's gonna it's gonna take leaders back there to to get them through it. They'll, I still they still kept an awful lot of clean sheets last season. I mean, I think it was the most actually in the Premier League, wasn't it? And it's I don't think there's a massive crisis there or anything. It's just it's just adding to it all and building, as we were saying, building on your on, on the momentum and 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 recognizing when there's when the, you need to replace and and they they didn't replace last season. They lost they lost company. Stones has obviously fallen a bit off the the radar, so a Koulibaly figure who can come in and 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 do a job and 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 looks built for for Premier League football. That that yeah, that would be significant. Yeah, on a wider issue, Migs City or the City Group acquired their tenth club, Trois, in the uh, uh, in the French league. It was their first fourth team in Europe. What about the broader implications of this? Almost. Are we at the stage now where, I don't want to throw you for at them yet again, but should this policy, which I understand the business logic to, but should this policy actually be allowed? It's difficult not to bring it back to a usual issue, where which kind of, it does feel like it goes against the idea of what a club and club ownership should be. I mean, I remember reading all, all these pieces on um, Soriano's genius in this about, about three years ago, you know, and the whole concept of globalization which is a local identity attached to a global club identity, which is what City do. And there is, 
I mean, there there is a, a real ingenuity behind it, but yeah, it, it's it's difficult not to be left a little cold by it, and for for someone to looking at what clubs are, which is again representations of local communities, so coldly, and 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 given the kind of the ongoing erosion of such principles, and and like the the increasing business attitude of the whole game, it it it. it, it it does instinctively feel as if something we should be asking questions about and, and wondering where this is going. And also, like, I mean, like, obviously, we, we all know clubs are of a different scale, of a different size. Some clubs will always be small clubs, all the rest of it. But even, I mean, one of the, one of the beauties of football is that, there, I mean, it's almost limitless in that sense that, like, teams can go from a certain level and rise to the top, as we've seen throughout Europe. But with that in mind, with some of the European clubs that City own, if they get to a certain size, they're going to mitigate against you know European qualification. What, what how, uh, how do they work in this in this project? What's their role in it? Uh, these are all, these are all questions which it feels like should warrant a bit more scrutiny, and because it just kind of perpetuates a sense of clubs as a little more than business vehicles. Yeah, well, modern football. We've had another indication of that this morning, Dom. I saw on social media, Kieran Maguire, looking at the Wigan situation. If the administrators sell Wigan, the total legal costs will be around $1.375 million. You add on to that that the administrators will have earned £1,337,467. And there will be another quarter of a million for assorted agents. That is re- those, those figures are really stark, aren't they? And they tell you that football is becoming even closely, closely the, 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 the financial imperative now is becoming overwhelming. Yeah, those, those figures are grim. They, they're not surprising, though. I, I go way back, go back, go back over twenty years. I, I experienced a, a club in administration. Um, I'd, I'd been employed for a while at Crystal Palace Football Club, and they went into administration when the money ran out for Mark Goldberg, and the forty-six people were made redundant overnight. And that that club stayed in administration, believe it or not, for sixteen months before it was taken over. It went in through an entire football league season with the administrators effectively running the club and, and, and in transfer embargo ongoing and somehow they survived. But imagine the costs of that. Imagine when Simon Jordan came in, imagine the costs that that, that administration had cost there. And it's and then football creditors take take precedence and, you know, whether that be other clubs, you know, and, and players, but also now you're seeing agents taking huge fees out of, that, that are owed to them through through dealings that they've done, basically getting players off the books for for Wigan this season, presumably. I mean, they've had a massive fire sale there. The amount of talent that's that, that's left that club, and we shouldn't we shouldn't forget that they almost stayed up. I mean, it was remember those last few weeks of of the championship season. It was only right at the death that they they went under. So yeah, terrible, grim times at Wigan, and you just got to hope that they. They draw some kind of some kind of inspiration, I guess. It's hard to do, but from from, the, from those all those other clubs that have gone through it and survived, look up look up the road at Bolton, and, and okay, they're, they're starting at a much lower level now, but at least they're still in existence. Because um, uh, you know there are other reminders out there, not least with uh, with Berry up the road as well. Mm. 
You look at um, United, and obviously you know, the Glazers come to mind. But let's let's go into football matters if we could, Megs. Donny Van der Beek, he, he seems to me a perfect player for the Premier League. How many signings do you think United away from being credible title challengers? One, the manager. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think that's still going to be the main inhibition for United. I just don't think Solskjaer is good enough, especially especially in a Premier League where you've got Klopp and Guardiola. Which isn't to say he's not kind of he doesn't have talents or isn't kind of going to keep them top four. But I think it is an issue for them he, with, with him, I suppose, or right, to, to get as close as possible to the title. I think they probably do need a lot of strength and depth, especially given how reliant his best football is on this extreme intensity of running, which seems to kind of... I mean, we've seen this pattern a few times now where United go on these streaks where they look brilliant because they're at top fitness. That naturally starts to wane. Player, players start to lose a little bit of form and move to drop out. And they United don't seem to be able to fill in the gaps in the same way. So they, they do need... For Solskjaer, certainly, they need greater backup. And I think at least three, four players to get closer to a title because while the first 11 looks very strong and maybe kind of three or four of the reserves or the subs beyond that then the, the, the team starts to get very stretched and it's but it's also why Van der Beek, Van der Beek is a good uh, good signing I mean there's been some talk about where he'll fit but that overlooks the fact that especially, especially in a season like this where there's potentially a game every three days you're very rarely going to be playing your, your best 11 Well that, that is the point isn't it Dom it is going to be an extraordinary season the, the demands are going to be amazing yeah, it's going to be the hardest ever. I mean, talking to sports scientists and chief medical officers at, at clubs up and down the pyramid, everybody is, is braced for an unbelievably difficult season. I mean, championship clubs are playing 14 midweek games this season, and that's just in the league. That's just in the league. Not 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 cup competitions or anything like that, just in the league. It's brutal, um, and it will, it's, it's, it's shaping how they're approaching things. It's shaping, there's an acceptance now that, there's going to be very little coaching and tactical coaching taking place. There's going, to be, there's going to be very little intense training during during the season itself. It's basically going to be games and recovery work to get squads through it. And then sports science departments and, and, and physio departments are going to have to try and make sure that those fringe players who aren't playing in the first team are up to a level. And that, that might mean that they actually get... They have to play in under-23s football to try and get some competitive edge to them, to try and bring them up to scratch so that they can be used if needed at, at first-team level. And, but everybody from Premier League to League 2 is saying it's going to be really, really difficult, but we're entering the unknown here. We're going to have to see where we are in the one or two months' time and see whether our approach, our particular approach, is, is going to be correct because this is completely uncharted territory. I can see people beginning to question the amount of international football the best players are expected to play. You know, we've we've had what is is in essence, you know, a pretty irrelevant competition shoehorned into the the preseason, if you like, if if last season ever ended. You're off to Copenhagen in the morning, Migs. What sort of team do you expect, and what sort of impact? Have these matches had? You know, the, the the win in Iceland, for instance, was was pretty underwhelming, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, and from an England perspective, I think it'll probably be a bit more experimentation in Denmark. I mean, even I think that was quite an experimental team on Saturday, but just 
by the nature of it, he's going to have to change even some of the more fixed positions. Like I think it'd be a stretch to expect Harry Kane to play. Southgate even said that on Saturday. There could be a bit more shifting around in the defence and, and midfield, to be fair. Yeah, and I, yeah, and I think it'll be... It'll be another one of those, essentially, I think, where there'll be a few... Not eyebrows raised, but you know, that's an interesting team from the lineup. But from a wider perspective of these games, as, as I think as frustrating as they are, especially from a Premier League perspective, and even when you're trying to kind of build up to the big kickoff again this week, there is the argument that there's actually never been a more necessary set of fixture, set of international fixtures in European football because outside basically the top three or four federations, these the the majority of, of of national federations need this money more than ever to basically run their leagues, run their grassroots. Because the, I mean, these are the first international fixtures for eleven months, and a lot a lot of smaller countries don't have the big broadcasting contracts. So from that perspective, these are, are I think really important games just, just for, for for that for that alone. And and of course the, the the COVID situation makes makes the finances even more pressing. But uh, the 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 quality of product isn't necessarily great mm. what well, you know you've got your ear to the ground at club level dom what are people saying to you about the, the the almost like the sustainability of the international game well <laughs> they don't have a choice let's, let's be mm. honest yeah they, they they have to to go with what the calendar dictates and i think there's a there's a there's a certain amount of realism out there you know we, we've missed out on one major tournament this summer so we, we've got a bit of a log jam to we've got to cram that into 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 next summer. I, I they, they, they did get the impression from a lot of the people I spoke to for a piece I'm writing this week is the Nations League is could easily have been sacrificed. They, they would have preferred that, but you know, Miggs is absolutely right that a lot of the smaller federations would have resisted that and would have and and UEFA obviously will resist would have always resisted that. Weirdly, in in these fixtures. The club's attitude was yes, it's it's disrupted pre-season, but pre-season was disrupted anyway. I mean, it was a lot shorter. A lot of the clubs haven't been able to get their sort of five, six, seven pre-season friendlies in, which would would have brought players up to scratch um, in terms of the, the the league start. But there actually was okay. So they're going to do this. If they're going to take the players away for ten days in in the middle of our just the week before our, our Premier League starts, then we want them to be playing. So like Tottenham Hotspur would be there hoping that Harry Kane does play against Denmark and gets another 75 minutes or 60 minutes or whatever under his belt because that is the only way that these guys are going to build up any kind of match fitness ahead of the new season. What what they hate as as clubs are when international players go away and they, they just sit around or they're on the bench because there isn't, by definition, with an international break, international managers don't sort of do the high intensity training work they're, they're all there generally speaking for the tactical game plans they they they, they don't have a, a club pre-season to get players up to scratch so so the guys that are going there and are not playing are basically just sitting around then they're, they're not working on their fitness in, in a in a way that is going to benefit the clubs when when the, the league season starts next week so for for them they you know the premier league clubs are desperate for these guys to be playing they want them to these games to be counted almost as one of those five, six, seven pre-season friendlies, regardless of the fact they're competitive international fixtures. Mm. Mention Spurs there. Migs, you know, we're going to have to get to the point where crowds are allowed back. That will probably be you know, driven by central government. Spurs want 
31,000 at a test event, and I can't for the life of me understand how you can socially distance with that number of people. They're also trying to get 4,000 of their highest paying fans in against Everton on Sunday. I understand the, the financial imperative, but but really? Yeah, the high, the highest uh, paid fans thing feels instinctively feels like this is not a direction we should be going down. And even if you're going to do, if you if you if it's going to be that limited, there should be some sort of at the, at the very least tiers within that limit because it feels very undemocratic. I mean, again, it's basically just t- typically depressing. Basically, opening football just to the highest bidder in that sense. Whereas again, we you know I think clubs should have should have a bit more community sorry community appreciation. In terms of fans coming back in general, it's, I think, a little bit like football coming back in June. It's another one of these situations, and, it, and it, I mean, this isn't really exclusive to football, but it's almost society, in that every step back to normality almost feels alien right now because obviously this is a situation we've never faced before. Any, any kind of return back, any step back feels an inherent risk until you do it, see that it works, and then it becomes part of normality again. And I think that's going to be the case with fans. Uh, funny, I was talking to someone about this a few months ago, and I said one of the bigger risks was actually that when you're sat, people sitting in front of each other isn't an issue. It's actually people, even outside, people sitting diagonally, which is something they have to work out because that carries a bit more risk of transmission. But then I suppose we're going into the kind of really granular details that need to be figured out and kind of suppose some of the kind of difficulties in all this. What sort of team do you think they'll be watching at Spurs when they're allowed in? You know, Mourinho bestrides everything there quite quickly. He's done that, hasn't he? Uh, he wants Ndombele out. How do you th- how do you think that's that side will will shape up this season, Dom? <laughs> second season, uh, remind me, Mick. Second season's good, isn't it, with Mourinho? Yeah, yeah. So you... Yeah, it's third season that's bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, how does that work I, I, when, the first, I... when the first season was? Uh... Half a season almost. <laughs> and he didn't get a preseason in it. Oh, no, it's all the maths has been thrown. Um, I I think they've been pragmatic in the transfer market this summer. I think they will continue to be so. I think they may well add another forward to the ranks who who can operate in a few positions as well as, as, a, as a backup to Harry Kane, which is a reflection of, of really where they're at. And he needs depth to to confront a, a Premier League challenge where he's 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 got to aspire to get into that top four. But realistically speaking, I, I think Spurs are going to fall short of that. So they, therefore, they need to qualify for the Europa League again. Maybe their best chance of Champions League football would be through winning the Europa League this season. And we saw how much they celebrated at the end of last, reaching that competition again. So you'd like to think that they would, would target that. As for the team... I just think they're in a position that a lot of clubs are finding themselves in at the moment. That money is tight. It's they have to sort of juggle their resources, and if that means that they have to to lose a, a player who, who who might normally have they, they would have been willing to give time to to develop, like an Ndombele, who was you know this time last year was their record signing. But if they have to sacrifice that, and there's a bidder out there, if there's somebody that will take him, that will give them a bit more leeway to, to strengthen the squad ahead of this particular season, then that's the route they go down. And we, we, it's not just Spurs that are doing doing this. I mean, a lot of clubs are uh, are letting players go that you know you raise an eyebrow at. To be honest, I mean, look at what's happening at Arsenal and the players, the, the bids that they're willing to to listen to or the interest that they're willing to sort of stoke up in some of their players, players that you'd have thought would have been key 
first team members potentially, you know, a year ago. But it's the particular circumstances of where they're at, and clubs are just having to to wheel and deal to coin a Harry Redknapp phrase. Mm, well, if you look at Arsenal, you've got you know Bellerin talk of PSG or Juventus. Yeah, as as Dom said, it is a very fluid situation, even at Arsenal, who seem to now starting to conform to Arteta's blueprint, which seems becoming increasingly clear, doesn't it? Yeah, totally. You can see you see towards the end of last season, particularly in some of the bigger games, there was even a hint of it in the community shield. That that's really a fixture we can't read too much into, given the extremely strange timing of it. But I I think I'm generally quite confident for Arsenal, I have to say, and I think they actually they don't have say. Manchester United squad, but they have a clear idea what they want to do. And in fact, I think they almost have, of the big six, the kind of most defined plan of anyone outside Arsenal and City, or sorry, um, outside Liverpool and City, and I'd include Chelsea in that. They just don't necessarily have the same quality. And that the, 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 the kind of the balance between that and what, what offsets most is going to be one of the more interesting things this season. But let's look at um, Wolves, for instance. Are they able to benefit from the fact that they will be more focused without European activity? Dom, they've signed Fabio Silva from Porto for £35 million, which is an awful lot of money for an 18-year-old and does signal some strategic intent and perhaps, again, the role of uh, George Mendes in this. You know, he, he was a common denominator in the, in the move from Matt Doherty to, to Spurs. Do you think there's any implication for Raul Jimenez and Manchester United, or is that a bit too simplistic, do you think? I think Wolves are an ambitious club that that want to get back into European football as soon as as soon as possible. I think they enjoyed the the taste of it last year. Selling Jimenez would would to regardless of whether that's to United or to anyone, I mean it would just it would just send out completely the wrong message for the project that they've they've got going there. I suppose practicalities may come into it at some point, but you, you're buying a you're buying an 18 year old. You're going to give that the kid time to sort of settle, and 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 selling your your best striker, and and basically therefore propelling the the, the teenager straight into the team with all the expectation of filling the boots doesn't seem like a, a logical progression to me. It's I think there's more structure and more planning and more strategy to to Wolves's approach than that. With regards to, yeah, the, the season ahead for them, given that their last season lasted about sixteen years, <laughs> it, it's. I think it'll be a godsend, to be honest. I think being without European competition for the, I, th- I expect them to be strong in the league, to continue their development in that respect, and and there's there's a lot, there's a lot going for that club and and team. Yeah, we can we can be cynical about the the Mendes links. But that's, that comes part and parcel with that particular philosophy and project. That, that they are a club that's going places, and, and I, I expect them to be back in European competition by the end of the season. So they'll probably get relegated now. <laughs> <laughs> what about Newcastle? You know, we've got amidst all the usual Ashley rancor and, and uncertainty, uh, they might be getting a, quite a decent window together. It looks like this week will end with Jamal Lewis. Ryan Fraser and Callum Wilson bolstering the squad. Given that mid-table type level that Newcastle are probably at, good picks at that level, Mix? Yeah, uh, it's really their best summer in some time, which feels all the more conspicuous given, I suppose, the, well, the situation we saw this summer where 
they came so close or well closer than ever to a potential takeover and the controversy with those potential owners given they were Saudis or given, given it was basically the Saudi public investment funds and what that brought up about about Mike Ashley um, I mean this expenditure should make the bigger questions about Mike Ashley go away I think even if Saudi Arabia were owners you wouldn't want at a football club that doesn't mean that doesn't make Ashley any sort of good owner that goes on but it, it, I mean more than anything then it, it's, it's almost and this is pure speculation and I was reading between the lines but it does feel like it, this expenditure is it's a little bit like they, that one they had I think it was around 2040 where he, he suddenly has amid years of kind of barren seasons or barren summers he suddenly goes on one splurge every now and then almost as if just to kind of keep the club keep their heads above water and and ensure they stay in the Premier League and this feels a bit like that they did something similar in the in the middle of the 2012-13 season when they were in yeah. Europe under under Pardew and bought a load of players from France including Sissoko in mid mid season and it and it did them the world of good and yeah. they 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 stayed clear of relegation and, and got to the quarterfinals of the Europa League but the, the, their window at the moment i mean we all saw Lewis's potential at Norwich last season he obviously has to learn still about the game at the top level but he's he's got a lot going for him Fraser's brought the experience that you you'd want as long as he can rekindle some of the form from 2018-19 but that's when he had such a good partnership with Callum Wilson I mean they, those two was the most, one of the most prolific partnerships forward partnerships in the in the Premier League and if you you, you chuck in um, you know Rob Holding potentially on loan from Arsenal for a season and they bought from Burnley, and his name has completely left me. Who did they buy from Burnley? The free transfer. From uh, Hendrick, right Jeff wing. Hendrick. Yeah, and they bought Jeff Hendrick on a on a free transfer as well from from Burnley, and he's a solid Premier League signing. And suddenly, that you know, of all the clubs in mid table, who were sort of looking over their shoulders still, Newcastle looked like a team that's able to look a bit further up the up the up the table and look more towards ninth ninth tenth rather than fifteenth sixteenth. Mm. What about Everton? It seems to be that Ancelotti is getting his men around him. James Rodriguez, a gamble? I wouldn't say a gamble. I think he's a quality player that basically, in 2014, when he was on an upward curve, made the wrong move from his career, for his career, can go to Real Madrid, where there obviously wasn't a place. I think that's caused problems basically since then for him, because he's had no defined role. And one of the things now is that he's going to a club where he very much will have a defined role. It might actually be perfect for him because a kind of a team can be built around him that way. But the other side, I, I can't help with almost everything with Everton. I feel they're going about this the wrong way. If you're a club trying to break, where who are obviously have a, have a financial ceiling, trying to break into kind of a group that's just beyond you, like the big six, I think what's repeatedly, been, what's repeatedly been illustrated in modern football these days is that you've actually got to get ahead of the curve and sign the next best thing as a manager, the next best thing as a player. And even for a while, that basically means being a stepping stone club. But if you look at I mean, a lot of stepping stone clubs, you know, from Ajax to Monaco, they've actually done very well out of it and got kind of Champions League semifinals, even if it wouldn't inherent acceptance that they have to move players on. Where, it's, where I think signing the cast-offs to the bigger teams, which is a little bit like what Everton are doing at the moment, when these players are kind of at their prime or beyond that. And you could even, I think this even applies to Ancelotti as well. I mean, let's be fair, if he was still one of the best managers of the world, he wouldn't be at Everton. And that'll be my concern for Everton, that this is all a bit more 
jaded than it should be. That might be, I don't think that'd be a very popular opinion on Everton, given the, the, excitement, <laughs> given the excitement about these names. But this is a problem when, 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 you're, when, you're getting, when you're getting distracted or excited by names and not much else, then that hints at something bigger there. And it's, it's why I just, I, still, I, I, I think there'll be some great moments for Everton, but I still just see a bit of stagnation about the club. What's your view of Ancelotti, Dom? Obviously, you you, you know you worked with him when he was around at Chelsea. What do you what do you what's your feeling about him? Well, he was he was brilliant to deal with, and and charismatic, and and a, and a manager that when he came in at Chelsea, uh, a manager that reminded players just how good they were. He got the best out of a very very good team, and and that that double season in in oh nine ten was probably the best football that I've seen yeah at, at Chelsea over my time covering them I mean they scored 100 goals they they were just I mean they just they just walloped teams in the second half of that season that was very much Ancelotti telling his players to express themselves and and, and coaxing the best out of them and I mean Didier Drogba didn't really have a, a better season than than that. I know he was good in his third year, but that that was that he acknowledges that was his best year at nine ten. But they had goals left, right, and centre. But the problem with that is that I think that is that is Ancelotti's skill. He's almost like a finisher. He's someone that that, that will take on a, a very good squad that might be just underperforming slightly and just take them to the next level. This is a very different task at Everton. I mean, it's a, a squad that's. As, as Mig said, they, they've actually been doing this quite a lot. They've been buying players in their prime for big money on big wages for quite a long time and then suddenly being shocked that, that these players have no sell-on value and, and their their form and careers seem to sort of steadily take are in decline and, and, and they're continuing to do that, which is, which is a concern in terms of their overall strategy. It's almost like they're driven by personality and, and razzmatazz rather than... Maybe something more, slightly more strategic and and um, and cannier. And Ancelotti is, uh, for all the great clubs that he's coached, this is very very different. The task he's got here, he's got to try and eke out something more with the seven team. What would that take him to? Probably to eighth or ninth, as opposed to second or third or fourth, or even taking them to a title. It's a a different a different level of of, of task, and I'm not not convinced yet that it's one that will bring the the best out of him okay well just um, a quick look at relegation candidates and actually one candidate West Ham they are getting their chaos in early aren't they this season or even before the season starts you know I could not for the life of me see what the logic was in selling Dean Garner very well regarded within the club you know, the, the sort of classic academy product, he'd done very well at West Brom, of actually selling him to West Brom. You've got Mark Noble, who is a, a player of immense stature and I think moral courage to, to actually weigh in the way he did. Wiltshire's done the same thing. That ownership, have they got any credibility whatsoever, Megs? <laughs> um, <laughs> there is, I mean, there is, I think we, we said this last season, there is an argument there, possibly pound for pound, the worst run club of the Premier League, especially especially yeah. when, when you look at the kind of and to be fair, this was something they wanted to bank on with them with the move to the London Stadium in the first place. But when you look at their potential as you know a club based in the capital with a relatively big name and tradition and identity, and yet the identity of the current team, I think this is never truer than with their recruitment policy. 
is just vague and undefined. And it, it, cause, it cause, I mean, they're, 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 they're ultimately, they're a football team run without any kind of vision whatsoever. And that can be seen in the different, prospect, the different profile players they sign, the totally different profile of managers they appoint, the constant change over managers. And I think it's, the, the one thing that keeps them going is that they're a relatively wealthy club and it means they always have just enough quality to stay up. But by the size of that club, they should really be a fixture in the top half. And they're, and all the que- I mean, the questions about what the club is should stem from that as to why they aren't. Because then you could get into all sorts of other issues, most of all the running of the club. Yeah, well, the, the, certainly the, the message, message boards are toxic at the moment. I, I actually do feel for David Moyes, Don, because, you know, irrespective of, of, of what you felt about him in the last few years post-Manchester United, there's a manager there who knows how to run a football club if he's allowed to get on with it. I, yeah, he's still, he's still got it, I think. I mean, it's... But he's yeah, his hands are tied behind his back. And look, I mean, if there'd been proper interest in some of the the players that West Ham would have loved to to have moved on, your Andersons, Lanzinis, Yarmolenkos, then I think Dian Garner would have very much stayed at the club. I mean, it's we're back into that scenario that we mentioned earlier about club some clubs having to make very difficult decisions to try and generate some some cash to spend this winter to, to, to strengthen other areas of the team and you know there is there's no other logic in selling one of your youth team products who's who's had such a great season last year it is purely down to the fact that they 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 need to raise some money somehow and there just simply isn't the interest in some of these mistakes you've made in previous transfer windows so you know if if they can bring in uh, a centre half, and I know they've, they've, they're trying probably to no avail to bring in Tarkovsky from Burnley. I, I can't see that move happening, but they obviously have targeted an area. And to be honest, anybody who watched their friendly, <laughs> go on, go on Twitter and have a look at some of the goals they conceded against Bournemouth on Saturday. Bournemouth walked in five at the at London Stadium. They won five three there, and the defending is utterly non-existent. And that's what will be concerning David Moyes now. Has he has he got a a squad that that are, are disillusioned um, and are, are they lacking focus? Are they are they are they going to be able to raise themselves ahead of the ahead of the new season? You know, when Newcastle rock up on the, on the opening weekend with a, with five new signings in their squad, how is how are West Ham going to react to that? And and when you've got your captain, you've got your Declan Rice, you've got Jack Wilshire, all all expressing regret at the loss of a youth team product, then that can't be good for. For team spirit, but that said, when David Moyes accepted that job the second time round, I don't suppose he thought it was going to be any easier than the first time. It's just a club that that <laughs> that, that has this propensity to to shoot itself in the foot at any moment, and they've done it on the eve of the new season. Yep, lot to ponder there, lot to ponder. Just to pull it all together now, our thoughts for the day. Can I start with yours, please, Migs? So one of the things I was actually thinking watching England this Saturday and also Ireland over the last few days because Ireland are basically engaged in a big kind of philosophical project right now but I wonder has it almost come full circle with international football in that with a club game obviously the the main issue or sorry every club to have any sort of success needs a tactical vision has to be best practice in a cutting edge in a modern game and with England 
and with international football for a long time, we would have we would have seen that for so long. But watch, watching England on Saturday, and especially it still feels like there's lack of kind of those very specific midfield midfield players to make this idea work. I, I wonder with international football, is it more than ever before about just tailoring a team to what you've got and going from there? I mean, sometimes, even though I know this, this is almost kind of sacrilege to say it, but given the, the players England have, which is kind of some fairly robust defensive players and some of the fastest attackers in Europe, you'd almost wonder, were they, were they better suit a counter-attacking game, especially against some of the bigger teams. Yeah, true. Uh, Dom? Well, I was going to be outraged at Chelsea's new third kit, which apparently has been inspired by the 1990s Ultramarine Air Max 180. <laughs> I, mean, I, just, I mean, why are football clubs being inspired by by, you know, manufacturers, trainers from the 1990s? God knows. But I won't go there. I'll, I'll, I'll stick with the England theme. I've I covered England for a long time, 2007 through to the 18 World Cup. And a constant theme in that period, we'd get Stephen Gerrard, we'd get Frank Lampard, we'd get Wayne Rooney, come out at one point or another in a tournament and say, God, we need to, we need to get, we need to start playing some of these, the, the dirty tricks that some of these, these opponents keep playing against us. And, how, you know, a bit of underhand tactics, a bit, be, be a bit more streetwise, be a bit more nasty. Well, I, I I never thought that James Ward-Prowse would be the one player that would finally take that on board and, and scuff up a penalty spot and then deny it post-match, I hasten to add. But it did the trick in that game. And I know Roy Keane was absolutely outraged at it, which made me laugh. But there we go. There we've got a, we've got a player that, that, that England will, for, for England, who will do that, who will take the dark, dark arts or, or the like and and wind opponents up and... And I say this again, ahead of Saturday's opening game, when James Ward-Prowse will be reunited in opposition with Wilfred Zaha. And of all the players out there who have got inside Zaha's head, James Ward-Prowse is right up there. Um, so expect some fireworks at Sellers Park, albeit behind closed doors on Saturday. And I must admit, I did love that. It was it was like the the choir boy nicking the communion wine, wasn't it? It was fantastic. Yeah, I, I was listening to the England game on the way back from my first match with a crowd for, for six months on Saturday evening. It was a small slice of football history, uh, Berry AFC's first home game, a 1-1 draw with Nostal Miners Welfare. It was typical of the level, Tier 10, uh, flawed decision-making and lack of composure mixed in with flashes of natural skill and instinctive movement. Maybe, just maybe, I was watching football with a future. A Phoenix club established for the fans, by the fans. They've had their football taken away from them by the worst type of club owner. There are no airs and graces. Fans rest their pints on a breeze block wall around the pitch. It was the sort of game and featured the type of player people could relate to. I wish AFC all the best for the season. Thanks then to Miguel and Dom, and as ever to you for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.